Hey everybody, we have a great episode for you here, but unfortunately we were trying some new things and couldn't quite get the sound to work out exactly right. Uh, like I said, it's we think it's a good episode, so we hope you enjoy it. Happy 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther first posted the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, he was driven by a deep concern for his congregation. This continued to be the primary driver of everything he did for his entire career as a reformer. Luther's concern for his congregation was expressed in many ways. He wrote sermons for his own congregation, he wrote guidelines for sermons for other pastors, he wrote devotionals, and even when he wrote a theological treatise, his mind wasn't ever very far from the regular folk and what this would mean for them. Today, we'll be looking at how Luther used music. In churchy terms, we call this Luther's hymnody, the body of music that was written by Luther to communicate proper theology to the congregation. I'm Mike Yagley. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the discussion of the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. Prost. Prost. We've got a few extra glasses here because we have a guest with us today. Uh, Chris Mowers is here, and we'll speak to his uh, love and, and care and, and desire to talk about Lutheran hymnody, but want to place this episode into context. So uh, today's yeah. episode is uh, it's going to be released on October 31st, uh, 2017. I Actually, I hope to be in Wittenberg on October 31st, 2017. But I we'll hope to see you pictures of you and Whitney. I, I hope to be there. So, uh, But it's going to be the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses, so it'll be, we can say, Happy Reformation Day. Yeah, I wore uh, red today. Oh, perfect, perfect. So, Which is the, the liturgical color for Reformation Day. I, I did not know that. I, I did not wear red. So the uh, 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 so today we're going to take a break from Luther's story at the Diet of Worms. And instead, we're going to, in honor of the 500th anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses, we'll be focusing on this episode on the single subject, which is a little bit different format than what we've done in the past. Uh, this is going to be uh, the, about the one thing that the that really animated everything, like we said in the opening, animated everything that Luther did, which is the congregation. So to tackle the entire issue of Luther's concern for the congregation and the people that we're hearing God's word, well, that would be too much for one episode. So we're going to limit ourselves to Luther's hymns and liturgy, uh, which were one of his favorite ways to communicate his theology to the common folk. Neither of us really know much about music, although there's a lot of hymns that I enjoy singing and I enjoy celebrating the liturgy of the church, but I don't have the research skills and the the, the love of it that Chris Mowers does. Chris Mowers is one of the members of St. Paul Lutheran Church, and this episode being focused on the laity, we wanted to bring Chris in, and we also, when we get to our beer break, you also hear how this theme of Martin Luther's care for the laity comes to us also in our beer break from the laity. All right, so Chris, why don't you speak a little bit just to your uh, bona fides? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm Chris Mowers. I studied music at Michigan State University, and um, on top of that, I've spent the past several years on a volunteer basis uh, working with Lutheran musicians and Lutheran choirs, uh, Lutheran instrumental groups, and uh, doing a, a little bit of composing and arranging myself. Um, a lot of what I've learned and what I'll share with you has come through um, my studies 
in the church to prepare, um, to prepare for the worship services of the church and the holidays and festivals of the church. Uh, you, you pick up things as you go here and it's, it's become actually uh, a passion of mine, definitely this great Lutheran heritage of music. Now, Chris has spent a lot of time digging into specifically for this episode. He's done a lot of research and, and at the moment he is, he's, I would say he's an expert. Amongst us three, certainly. <laughs> At least inside this <laughs> He is our expert, uh, that our, our local expert on, on hymnody. So we're thankful. Thank you, Chris, for ha- for coming. Absolutely. We really have no clue. <laughs> now, when, when Martin Luther is writing hymns and revising the liturgy, he's not doing so uh, from his position as an academic. He was a professor in Wittenberg, um, but he's doing this more from his role as a pastor, uh, of a preacher of someone that is, as he is sharing God's word, looking at the eyes of people and seeing how they are receiving the word he is sharing. So, yeah, as we've talked about on this podcast over and over again, is how Luther, the, the, the his care for his congregation drove him uh, to do pretty much everything. You know, the, the, the posting of the 95 Theses was because he was concerned about his congregation. Um, the, uh, the, the, the concern for works and the way works were being trying, people trying to justify themselves through works was, you know, based on his own experience and, and how that played out with his, in his congregation. In his preface to his Latin writings, Luther tells us that he was haunted by the righteousness of God. And, and this gives us a sense of what his lens into the questions of theology were shaped by. And that is, what does it mean to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? What shapes our identity? What forms our relationship with God? Now, perfection is how we compare against God's commands. So the Old Testament law. Old Testament law and and just that chief law of love the Lord your God and serve your neighbor. Uh, How are you doing with that? And now, Luther's initial schooling was... To be a, a, a lawyer. lawyer, a lawyer. Now the thing is, is that Luther also understood. I mean, he was a, he was a he was a professor of biblical you know, of the Bible, and so he understood what Christ told about the law. It yeah. was it's what's in your heart, not just you know what you do. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, if you've heard it said of the law, uh, you shall not murder. But I say to anyone who is angry at his brother and calls him a fool is liable to judgment. And you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who has lost in his heart. And and Jesus on that Sermon on the Mount is moving the law just from any outward observance, but to the attitude of the heart. So what's happening, what Luther sees here for the laity is that the more they understand biblical teachings on the law and how the law needs to be approached, the more fearful, the more terrifying it becomes, and the more difficult it becomes, and and so th- he's deeply concerned and about this. The law this. does not become his salvation. Keeping, and right. observing, being perfect in the law, it, rather than leading towards his salvation, becomes an unbearable burden for Luther. So, so that gets us into the whole doctrine of grace, and we have you know where where we are saved by God's grace through faith. And, and that is the, yeah. the, that's the, that's the tipping point for Luther. The knowledge of the law leads Luther to seek the gospel. And so now he's got to go out and he has this great revelation and he's got to go out and tell the world about it. And he uses all sorts of different ways to do that. So when he sees people in his congregation lining up to view, lining up to view the relics at the castle church to reduce their time in purgatory, or when he sees them traveling to Ducal Saxony nearby to buy indulgences, he knows what they're going through. They're trying to relieve their burdens. They're trying to take that weight 
uh, of uh, perfection that they can't keep off their souls or off the souls of their ones they love, and they're not getting closer to God. And right. So he realizes that the Bible's teaching that we're saved by grace through faith, and so he tries to deliver this good news in, in something, Mike, you're looking at as a three-pronged strategy. What are those three areas he does? Well, the, 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 what I see is the three-pronged strategy is uh, at least in his interface with the laity. You know, not not with pastors, not but his interface. Well, your with, first one is dealing with the pastors, though. Well, that's true. That's true. So it's, uh, let's just go over these. The three prong strategy is sermons, mm-hmm. which and you're right. These are he's writing sermons for himself, but also I was thinking writing sermons for himself. But he also writes sermon outlines for other pastors. Well, so he teaches the priests and the theologians how they should read the Bible, right? And how should they should teach the faith to others? Okay. Number two, he battles with anybody he saw abusing the laity. Absolutely. And then number three, he's going to teach the laity directly. Right, 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 right. So, so, in, and that's what I got, I got actually ahead of my notes. So I, <laughs> I, well, I was bringing you back. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. So, so, so the three to the laity was the sermons that he gives, the sermons he gives, and then the, the devotionals that he writes. And then the third one is hymns. And so that's the three prong strategy of the directing his discussion to the academics. Uh, attacking those who are abusing the laity. But for today specifically, what does he do with the laity? The sermons, the devotions, and today the hymns. All right, so we got there. Now this brings up why Chris is in the room. He's been patiently saying, ooh, soon it's my turn, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Now, so our first records of Luther's musical history, where do they come from? So uh, actually we have an interesting thing going on in 1505. Uh, Luther is a student at the University of Erfurt. Uh, and it seems like there's something going on at Erfurt with, with the way that music is being thought of and used. So, so can you, who, who's bringing that? Is there like a, is there like a ground zero for, for the, this, this energy around yeah. music? Well, we, we, we're not, I think, sure whether it's coming from the faculty only or from the faculty and the students, but definitely you see some, some people who would shape uh, Lutheran hymnody, hymnody in the coming years, uh, most notably, aside from Luther, Justice Jonas. Uh, Jonas, if he hasn't come on, uh, come up on your podcast yet, I'm sure he will. Uh, John, Jonas becomes, um, close to Luther in that he even travels to, uh, the Diet of Worms with him, uh, and is a fellow pastor, hymn writer. Yeah, that's uh, a spoiler yeah. alert. Uh, uh sorry. So actually, that, that, <laughs> actually, they just heard that. So we just had, uh, we just in the last episode, we talked how, how Luther picked up Justice Jonas and, and took him to the Diet of Worms. So, um, you see, you see that, Luther, even at the age of 21, being shaped by uh, this this coming culture. Um, and and also there's a strong tradition, and this is going to come up probably a few times, uh, there's a strong tradition in Germany right now of, of the folk hymn. Uh, what this is, is essentially um, popular music, if I can put it that way, uh, but it is religious in nature. So it's not like a secularized popular music, but it's the, it's music that the church is not using in, in her service. It's just the people sing it. Uh, and, and this is actually going to be a big factor, both with the reformers and it's even a factor against the reformers. We'll talk about that for a little bit. One, um, one idea I want to just squash, though, because there are things said about Luther and his contemporaries that, that are not true in this regard. Um, you hear often that, that Luther brought in songs from bars. Uh, well, or, and so, yeah. Chris, that comes from yeah. the... I remember reading this in the 
purpose-driven life, talking about that freedom that we have to bring the secular world into the church. And it was someplace else that I read it uh, by a book by Stephen, oh, I forget his name, but he was talking about how the church needs to become contemporary and take the tools of this world and, and, and make them sacred by bringing them in the church. And the, 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 like the big justification for why you could do this is because Luther took bar tunes and brought them into the church. And now they're thinking bar tunes, English, we're, we're expecting, they're talking about the pub, but bar tunes mean something else than the pub. It, it does. So, so this is, it's hard to actually track this down for sure, but the best theory on this, there is a bar form of, of hymns and many of our hymns are in, are in bar form. Uh, now, bar, you're not talking about where they're sung. You're talking about music. Exactly. Yes. It's a, it's a musical form where, um, the first line and the second line have the same tune. And a lot of the Luther hymns are that way. So they would call um, that bar form. And that ex- might have gotten exactly. misinterpreted to be bar. Especially by 20th century theologians right. or book writers that want to find a reason. See, this is why I'm glad we have somebody who knows what they're talking about here. <laughs> that, <laughs> so yeah. the bar tune is that folk hymn. Now, um, and as he's doing that, he is bringing the language that the people are using to share their Christian faith outside of the worship service. Absolutely right. Yeah. So there is, he, he is going to bring uh, a layer of familiarity uh, as he's bringing the people's language into the divine service. Now, so he meets Justice Jonas in Erfurt. They're doing this, they're seeing this kind of role of song um, to give expression to the piety and devotional life of the people outside of the specific structure of the church. But even before that, he also has the experience of just traveling as a, a young student, playing his lute and trying to make money as a beggar. He, he does that in Eisenach. I did not know that. Yeah, so like uh, part of the role of the student, the groups of students, they would go house to house and they would sing their song and you would get paid to have them leave. Or you could pay to <laughs> give thanks for them. But the idea was the students were expected to go out. And, this is like the English wassailing tradition. So yes, yeah. yeah. And so Luther is known to have played the lute as a part of that and in that travel okay. in Eisenach before he ended up in Erfurt. Okay. So so basically so let's take this back here, Chris. So so what Luther's got his Augustinian vows in what, fifteen oh five, right? Fifteen oh five. So now he's not as much the folk hymn in the bar form. Well, I was going to mix things because he was known to go to the bar in Erfurt. And I was going to confuse again by bringing yeah. bar, and bar we, 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 Yeah, we probably should. <laughs> we right, should so, probably segregate those. We would call it saloon or something. Yeah. But so, uh, public house. Yeah. So in 1505, how does the Augustinian vows start to shape his music then there? Well, Luther takes his vows and becomes an Augustinian monk. Uh, he also is, is becoming a priest and becomes a priest. So uh, he needs to learn. Um, all of the music that comes with the performance of the Mass at that time. You have antiphons, hymns, responsories, uh, things that would be sung in, in the daily offices as well as, as the daily Mass. On top of that, monks often, and Luther was no exception, had to have the entire Psalter memorized. The entire Book of Psalms was memorized. How many was, songs is that? Do you have any uh, idea? Well, well the it's Psalter, about, the 150 Psalms, mm-hmm. they might... Um, they would reference it maybe to the Septuagint. Too. Oh, 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 the Psalter. The Psalter, Psalter. Okay. The okay. And, and this would have been during lunchtime. Every week they would hear all the Psalms. Exactly. So oh, okay. There would all be right. just a series of progression. There's a couple of those week. Psalms that are pretty long. They're quite a few pages <laughs> yes. long. So as it comes up to your turn to do that, you're, you're going to put them to So yeah, Evan, can you handle this one for me? So you do see Luther here stepping now more into, 
um, the more traditional music of, of the church at that time uh, and, and having to commit himself to learning all of those things to fulfill his duties as a so monk and a priest. So 1505, he takes his vows. He learns uh, the songs of the offices of the church, so the, what would be sung at the different prayer services through the day. He commits himself to learning the chants of the Mass. And now 1513 to 1518, he is living in Wittenberg as an Augustinian monk, and he's also a professor. And so what happens there in Wittenberg? So one thing um, that I that I learned uh, in reading Dr. Lever, who is one of the one of the um, sources of, of a lot of my material here, is that we find Luther preaching on the songs of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the book of Psalms, of course. Um, I was I was unable to really see if there was anything notable in there. Um, and, and certainly probably those those. Some of those lectures might be findable. Um, I couldn't really find much. But I think the the fact that he's going to be preaching and teaching on the songs of the church brings into that idea that, for him, life in the church is never just an act of performance. It has a theology behind it. So as he's preaching and teaching the songs of Miriam or the song of Miriam or song of Hannah or the Benedictus, any of these songs of the scriptures... As he's preaching him, he's getting a, a scriptural foundation as well. Right. And there's a great, there's a great tradition of song in scripture and, and song often coming from people that, that might be analogous to, to the laity in the church of today. It wasn't just the clergy. It wasn't just, you know, the, the priests in the tabernacle singing these songs. These okay. were, these were, you know, the, the people of God in all forms. Yeah. So if you place the context of Miriam singing the celebration song after crossing the Red Sea, she's not Aaron. She's not a priest. She's someone that has looked at what God has done and singing a song of praise. You have, uh, you know, Samuel's mother, thankful that she's been given a child. These, these songs that are placed in the voice of the laity start, I think, to naturally influence Luther's expectation that the laity are going to have a voice. As we think about his letter to the Christian nobility, you know, that, that confidence he has as he studies the scripture and the songs of the church, he says, these are sung by people. They're not sung by just some statue uh, or marble statue of someone who's perfect in the past. These were real people. Or, or, or even Moses. You know, Mo, this is this is Marian, like yeah. like you said. This isn't Moses. This isn't the leader. This isn't the equivalent of the Pope. This is this is the equivalent of somebody in the laity and, and a woman at that. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. You get that. You already you sort of see that Luther may have been picking up on that. And his doctrine, we talked a lot about equality, and, and that's the, how the hymns pull into that. That identity in our baptism. Now, 1513 to 1518, he's preaching and he's teaching on the songs. Do we have any record he's writing songs yet? Uh, no. The first song we see is in, um, is in 1523. So not until after the posting of the 95 Theses. Um, after the Diet of Worms, after, right, uh, after right. the escape to uh, the castle of Warburg, and then he preaches the Invocavit sermons, and there he starts to really, when he comes down from the Warburg, and he is seeing the effects of the Reformation on the people, as Karlstadt does it wrong, Yeah, he's now like, alright, time to really be a pastor. So what was that first song again? So the first one is kind of interesting because it's it's one that most are not familiar with. Not it's, in it's, our it's not in our hymnal. It's called in English a new song here shall be begun. It's actually a ballad, a, a very long ballad. So it's it's in this historical ballad format where it's telling it's telling a story of a thing that had happened. And what had happened in this particular case was two followers uh, or two students of Luther were in Brussels uh and were burned at the stake for for heresy. Uh, this is, so this is the first hymn that he writes is to, to tell this story. Okay. And so this first song that Luther writes, 
um, that uh, it's almost like a poetic song, uh, uh, a ballad is... It almost sounds like propaganda, right? Is this sort of like... Time to get the message out. Yeah. And, and part of what is happening is, as, as you were looking at this, there was this question, had these followers of Luther in Brussels recanted at the stake? Yeah, so this was the thing that was being spread. The word that was being spread was that as they were being burned, uh, that they had recanted, uh, that they had taken back, you know, the the, the gospel. Um, but it's much more than that. I mean, I think that was that was certainly part of his motivation. So was well, to correct that, the, to yeah. correct the, this 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 uh, you know lie that that they had recanted, and he wants to get word out that 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 they is not what happened. Yeah. Okay. C- certainly, you said there's more to it, but there's there's more to it, yeah. And and I think some of this, I wonder if Luther even knew, kind of where he was headed here. Uh, but but you see him start to teach even in this hymn. Uh, and it, I would like to read just just a few. Uh, it's a very long hymn, but I'm going to read just a few examples uh, of it. So uh, a new song we begin in the name of our Lord to sing what God has done to His praise and glory. From this world have departed, they have the crown obtained, truly as God's pious children for his word have died, they have become his martyrs. So Luther is starting to teach on martyrdom in this ballad. And I think it's interesting because uh, while Luther dies a natural death, uh, certainly not without suffering in his life and many around him will be will be martyred. Um, so in the part of the song, when, when they're talking about sort of the charges being read, uh, against, against these two, uh, these two young men, um, the worst error was this. One must believe in God alone. Man deceives and disassembles ever, but should trust nothing else. For this, they must be burnt. So this idea that, that they were being burnt for putting their faith in God rather than men. Uh, and you, you see Luther there already. I mean, we're 15, 1523 here, but he's already really starting to, Afterwards, drive, drive the through. The... Why were these guys killed? It's because they declared that faith was in God alone. Well, the, yeah, this was 1523. So, so this was after the Diet of Worms. Sure. And like you said, this is after the Wartburg and after the. Pe- this is like peasant revolt. Well, peasant right? revolt is 1524 to 1525. You got 1522, 1523. The knights. So we haven't talked about this in the podcast yet. No, so. but in in 1523, Brussels is not the a strong Protestant area. It's actually one of the areas where Charles V has the greatest strength. Okay. And when Oleander went around to share the charges, yeah. and when John Eck went around to share the charges against Luther, they went to Brussels first mm. to make it easy, right? Okay. All right. So All right. so let's look now. 1523, um, we, this is, he's coming out of hiding following the Diet of Worms. So we want to place this a little bit into context. So uh, 1521, we got the Diet of Worms. We, we've got him going to the Wartburg. 1522, he comes down and uh, he leaves the Wartburg because Andreas Karlstadt has been instituting reforms in Wittenberg. And the reforms have been aggressive and excessive and commanding, coercing people to change the liturgy, change the hymns, change the statues, uh, change the stained glass, and it's by coercion. And so then that spring, Luther comes down, he preaches a series of eight sermons known as the Invocavit Sermons. And in these sermons, he says, if change is going to come about, it's going to come about because the liberty and freedom that people know that they have in gospel. So this is, this is, you know, really what was happening was, and just to sort of restate what you just said, is that that Kallstadt, you, you, you mentioned very quickly yeah. there that Kallstadt had, he was forcing people 
into the evangelical theology. So he into, was forcing people to take the Lord's Supper in both the bread and the wine, though uh, Luther had advocated that people do that. Luther wanted that change to happen because people asked for it. And, and Karlstadt was demanding people do that. He, he was uh, having priests getting married, and he was uh, changing the vestments. And Andreas Karlstadt, who had been the dean of Wittenberg, had been with Martin Luther at the debate at Leipzig. Uh, he was right there alongside of Luther, but he just went into this aggressive reformation. And, and Luther is starting with his songs uh, and his reform of the mass to start to see how this reformation will play out in the lives of people. If you do it through coercion, it will burn out quickly. Um, because people will do it because they have to, but you take the threat of coercion away and people will go back to their old ways. But if we teach and preach and sing the gospel and, and the promise language of hope that is in Christ, then this change becomes embedded. The other thing that's happening uh, is also just with this sense of the voice of the laity. We have Luther writing the letter to the Christian nobility, uh, which is advocating the Christian nobility take their voice and their power within the church to bring about change. There is the growing sense among the laity that they have a voice. And this voice in the church then also translates into a voice in social and economic issues. And Thomas Munzer, who is, uh, had been a, a companion of Luther's for a sort, uh, is advocating for an upheaval of uh, the socioeconomic system. And in 1524, 1525, there is a peasants' revolt that takes place across much of Germany as the, the nobles uh, had been taking possessions of people's lands. And that sense of covenant between noble and peasant who work together in a relationship becomes upended as the nobles are trying to secure their wealth that is starting to kind of become diluted. The peasants are trying to secure their their, their freedom claim, and their, their freedom and their claims, just their basic livelihood. They rise up. They're not military trained. They don't have weapons. And uh, Luther believes that each person should do that which they're called to do. And the peasants were called to farm. They were called to work. The nobles were ordered to keep the peace. The peasants revolt. The peasants are not keeping the peace. Um, and so Luther calls on the nobles to restore the peace. The nobles do that. And they end up killing 100 to 300,000 peasants. And uh, Luther is seen as one who had advocated for the peasants to take up their voice and, and see their identity within the church. And then when they start to speak up more than he expected or in a way that upends their vocation, uh, then he calls the nobles to take on their role as keepers of the peace and restore order. They do so in uh, just a, a very violent way. And um, so when Luther is reforming the Mass so that the laity have a voice, there is keenly in our mind what is happening in the political sphere is when the people took their voice up um, in violence, In violence, uh, Luther advocated uh, for the nobles to restore the peace. Now he is upending the church with his reform of the Mass. And, and what Luther is really trying to show is my reform is not just that you can say whatever you want to say. My reform is so that you can say what God has called you to say. So, so like, so that's, that gives great, and thanks for that. That gives great 
background to what's happening in this whole 1523 period that Luther is starting to write this. There's a lot, and we've talked a little bit about the Diet of Worms, uh, where they're getting nervous, where the, the nobles are getting nervous about the peasants. They're, they had the peasants' boot showing up at the, uh, in, in Worms. Yeah, the Bunchu revolt happens around the time of the Diet of Worms. And at the Diet of Worms, you remember the, the letter of excommunication had also excommunicated one of the knights. And the knights' revolt takes place 22 and 23. So all of this is all happening together. And in the middle of all this, Luther is writing songs. He's writing tr- songs, trying, and the songs have power. And, 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 and trying to communicate in this. And you can sort of understand how important it is that Luther uses every means at his disposal in the, in this background of violence and, and revolt and, and, and to use everything at his disposal to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that, you know, will sort of bring some, some yeah, so if you're going to give people the liberty and the freedom to have a voice, the next thing is, what are they going to say? And that's now, as we start to look at the Formula Messiah, the evangelical real vision of the Latin Mass, it's still going to be in Latin. And in it, um, what Luther is doing is saying, if we are going to reform the Mass, the, the, the liturgy of the church, what will it look like? So, so what is the, what is the, what was that, the Formula? The Formula Messiah, so it's just the form of the Mass. Oh, okay. So, you know, you see uh, it. In oh, Latin wait, wait, no, hold on. We got, that was, that was Latin, wasn't it? Yeah, that was Latin. We got Sorry. some Latin coming on. Oh, okay. <laughs> we only really have to drink when I unnecessarily use Latin. <laughs> Not just every time I use Latin, but just when it's unnecessary. Uh, uh, so I don't he mind. writes the form of the Mass. Um, it, it's the Latin revision, and this is taking place. And in this, he is going to reorder some things. And one of the neat things about his revision of the Mass is he doesn't take up one form from some area and lift it up as perfect. Um, what he does is he looks at the needs of the people. He says, what do they need to hear to hear God's Word? And so he'll take pieces from a couple different places and put it together because he says, it's not that I have to find something perfect and now tell my people this is perfect. It's rather, he says, we have the perfect, we have the gospel. Now let's find out the best way to share that. Okay. So let's, let's hear about, uh, we've got a quote here now um, about his revision of the Latin Mass. And in it, he writes, I wish we had as many songs as possible in the vernacular, which the people could sing during Mass immediately after the gradual and also after the Sanctus or the Agnus Dei. For who doubts that originally all the people say these which now only the choir sings? Now, one of the things that we have to sort of remember, you know, I, I think everybody, most of the folks who are listening to this know that at this period, the the, the Latin Mass, the, the, the Roman Catholic Mass was fully in Latin. Fully in Latin, yeah. And the Creed could be in the language of the people. And, and that, so the creed would, could be in the language of the people. Though. So, so when Luther says, I wish everything was in the vernacular, he's saying, I wish everything was in a language that the folks could understand. Right. right. That's, that's basically what he's getting at here, including the songs. And not only in the vernacular of the, as in speaking of what language it is, but that it was in the voices of the people. And the it's, common language and what the speech. Well, not even common, but just in the, the voices of the people who are in the, in the nave of the church, the pews. Instead of just the choir, he's concerned that the the celebration of the mass has become an action of the professional choir rather than of the vernacular. And when he's speaking of vernacular with his revision of the Latin mass, he's not only talking about German or Latin; he's talking about uh, who's saying it. So and let me. And this is 
Uh, is that something you deal with today? Because I, I know, you know... Well, I deal with it in this way, is who should sing in church? And even, um, you know, today someone was joking about, oh, you wouldn't want me singing pastor. And because they have this concern that they don't have a professional enough voice. And the question is, who has the authority to sing the songs of the church? Is it the professional that knows um, all the names of the notes and everything like that? Or is it the baptized? And Luther's making the point that if we're going to revise the Mass, we need to give the people that sense of authority that they are a part of this. Okay. What do you think of that, Chris, of, of that, that sense of shame that some people have about singing? That's, that's absolutely right. And, um, we see both, both from the words of scripture, like in Colossians, as well as the reformers and, and others throughout time, that the act of singing, um, writes this stuff on our heart through the power of the word of God. Uh, it, you know, we prepare ourselves for future trials, temptations. We grow in our faith, uh, when we sing these words. Uh, and, and I think that Luther and his contemporaries there. There's not a footnote in the scriptures. You know, we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs on key. Right. I'm sure that would right. be appreciated, but it's not <laughs> a requirement. Absolutely. That's right. And in so, fact, as I've heard some of the, like, Sephardic, um, chanting, have, have you heard some of yes. that from the, from Spain and others. Sure. Yeah. It is Byzantine chant too, and the all Byzantine that. Byzantine chant. Yeah. It, it is nothing it's kinda, like kind of wild. It is kind of <laughs> wild. Well, let's look at now. No, so, uh, actually, I think you threw out a, somebody threw out a word: the gradual. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking earlier about the pieces that Luther was hoping people would sing, and one of the things that came up was the gradual. Why don't you speak about that? So the gradual is this little piece of of. Usually psalm, uh, could be other texts of scripture and, and traditionally chanted. Uh, it would fall somewhere in the readings throughout, throughout the history of the church. There have been a different number of readings, uh, read around the gospel. Uh, today most churches are, are using an Old Testament and epistle and a New Testament or in a gospel, but that hasn't always been the case. So where the gradual have, has fallen in that group has changed a little bit. Uh, today it falls typically between the Old Testament and the epistle. Um, and, and where that actually, it's a Latin, Latin word, uh, and it refers to the, the gratis, which is, if you picture yourself in a medieval church, you've got the nave where the pews are, and then up front you have a sanctuary typically elevated, and there will be steps. So the gratis is actually the steps. Uh, and that's, think about like the word gradient. That's, that's what it's getting at. Uh, so a- along, you know, as liturgy was developing, there came this practice whenever there's motion, particularly among the clergy, uh, cause they're reading these, they're reading these readings from different areas in, in the sanctuary. It's traveling music. It's traveling music. <laughs> it's, it's pious traveling music. Exactly. So the gratis became this thing that would be sung, uh, from the step. Uh, as we were getting ready for from one reading to another reading, and that's, so it's sort of like a transition yeah. type thing, as a, like you said, a traveling music. It's sort of like going from one part of the now that's both you know going from one part of the service to another part, and as they walk from one part to another part, is that true? Right, or? and so the gradual is a spot in the liturgy that is a great spot for a hymn to be written. Because there's no specific text as much for the gradual. There's a lot of freedom for what we sing during that moment in the liturgy. So the gradual is one of the first places where the common singing of hymns is introduced in the liturgy. That's right. And and so Luther essentially says, why don't we take this spot where we're singing a psalm or something, and let's put something here in German that the people can sing. He sees this as, as a moment and an opportunity and and an innovation to the Mass, but a, but a good innovation, one that, that puts the word of God in the language of the people for them to commit to their hearts. 
Okay. So, so now what what happens next in in uh, in fifteen twenty three? What's the uh, was that the, was that the only song he wrote in fifteen twenty three? Well, not only is it a song, but he re- writes and revises the whole Latin Mass, and, and so there is just that question of. Uh, what is the intro going to sound like? What's the Kyrie and Eleison going to sound like? What's the Gloria? And, and so he's got the Latin text, the tune, and then the ordering of where these are. But then in 1523, he also uh, he writes a hymn book. That's right. So we have the first Lutheran hymn book published in 1523. Uh, in English, it would be called the Eight Song Book. Uh, I'm going to guess there were eight songs. There, in it. there were eight songs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and did Luther write all these eight songs? Uh, no, Luther. Luther wrote four. Uh, um, Paul Sparatus, another uh, Lutheran pastor who I believe was martyred in, in Moravia or Bohemia, somewhere east, uh, wrote three of them. And then there's one that's sort of disputed. Uh, it, it could definitely be Justice Jonas, but, but we're not sure. And I bet um, the, 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 the eights, uh, that was the only vernacular or the only, only songbook that was, was sort of like the Beatles of that era, right? Was that? <laughs> well, this, this is the, the first time that we know of that, that hymns were, sort of bundled and distributed. Uh, you know, all the, all the folk hymn tradition had been passed on, you know, originally, of course, orally. And then with the printing press, um, you, you know, some of that may have come about, but this is like, this is sort of, I don't want to call it a commercial venture because no one was making money, but, but it was, it was a production, right? I mean, these things, these things were being spread. Uh, they were printed on broadsides, which are these big paper sheets and then just folded and, and passed around. Uh, and, and that allowed, this rapid distribution, plus the people love to sing. Like this is something that the people had been denied, yeah. uh, and they've been doing it out in their towns, you know, and all that. And it's like we can sing in church now. And, and so the was... love of sing is going to start to be found also in the catechism tradition. The catechetical tradition of the Lutheran Church was, and, and we'll see this in some of Luther's hymns, was to use the hymns to teach the Christian faith. We often today, I think, of hymns. As, as something of an expression of the soul, of some sort of just emotive response. Um, and, and there is that spot for it, but largely in a non-literate culture, you can learn things through song much easier than you can through just rote words, I think. I, I'm sure it would be easier to remember. I, well, I just look at, you know, when I've got a car full of confirmation kids who are heading somewhere, and a song comes on the radio, they can't remember the books of the Bible, but they know this five-minute song word for word. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and that's uh, not the, unusual. The power of the song is amazing. Uh, absolutely. Well, hey, what do you guys say we take a beer break? Uh, t- today we have, let's let's get our... Yeah, so we have um, beer today. That has been brewed by a member of St. Paul. So we had Chris Mowers, a member of the laity of St. Paul. We had, uh, now Stan Buckrick has brewed two beers for us. The first is a pale ale. It's a modified cornerstone India pale ale. Um, it was supposed to be an IPA, but he, uh, has written that he doesn't like beer to taste like prairie grass. I think, I think I agree. So when he brews an IPA, he often uh, reduces the secondary hop addition. So he can't quite call it an IPA. He calls it a. This is a very, very good, though. Yes. I, this is a, a well balanced really... flavor and bite. Uh, he calls it. Uh, says it has a sustained head uh, when poured, and we saw that. We saw that. Yeah, just to, to give our listeners a little idea, we actually had to wait a couple of seconds to, to, to yeah, let it, it. It was, it really had quite a head. And he got the recipe, although he's revised it from adventures in homebrewing in Ann Arbor. Now we have a second beer. 
Ah. This is unusual. Very unusual. But Usually our beer break involves just one beer. Not complaining. But we're sharing among three people, so it spreads a little bit easier. This is the Fire Island Scotch Ale. Um, he, he wants to make sure copyright purposes not related to New York's Fire Island Brewing Company. Um, it is a, a crystal chocolate malt, uh, brown mm. sugar, Kent Golding hops. Uh, in, uh, the chocolate malt is a, a smooth flavor in it. It is a fall winterish ale with pleasant hints, notes resembling Scotch whiskey, sans actually uh, no barrel aging. So, so when we were when we were passing out the beers, now usually Josh doesn't drink beer with us. He just does the sound. He just does the sound, and uh, but today when he when he heard we had the Scotch ale, he he. he yeah, you know, he was happy to get one of these. I would say the chocolate uh, malt in it, though, does it reduces it from uh, Scotch ale that I'm used to. I'm used to that that's that strong flavor on the tongue mm. of Scotch, and here I think the chocolate really mellows. It's it's a very mellow beer. I, I'm I, both of these are excellent beers. I'm really enjoying both, and I'm. I, I I hope I'm not slurring by the end of the... But. Well, and Stan had tried to brew a special Oktoberfest beer for us for this recording, uh, but when he went to go pick up the ingredients, they were out. Ah, so this has been excellent. I, this, uh, I appreciate it. So he doubled up. He gave us two beers. He instead gave us of, two beers because he couldn't give us the one he had th- That's okay. He can keep delivering. So we have... Uh, now, returning back, we've got this eight-song book, uh, first published hymn book, in 1523, and how did this help shape the hymn of the church? Well, for the first time, we have now a standardized, or, or a, a, everyone can sing from the same book, right? So this starts to spread, and as as everyone gets to know these hymns, uh, they become truly the songs of the people in the divine liturgy. And so is it as Martin Luther's translation of the Bible into German helped shape the German language, we also see now the way that the hymns are being written, notated, and shared. It's starting to shape the expectations people have for the hymns. Absolutely. Um, we're still at this point in an era where where there are competing formats for musical notation. There are different, uh, there's chant notation and, and some other some other ones. But Luther now uh, is, is putting something out that people, lots and lots of people are going to look at. Uh, the, the Lutheran chorale, which we'll talk about chorales here in a minute, uh, really is uh, a creation of Luther. It's really, truly, he has contributed a big thing to music, not just to theology. There. So yeah. the, this is this this first hymn book came out in 1523. It ob- it had a, a stranglehold on the market. Everybody was singing from this it's one. The only one out there. It's the only one out there. How long did that go on? Well, uh, we have a few more books being published in in the following years. Here, um, Luther composed two-thirds of, of his hymns in 1523 and, and 24. Um, these these are getting published. So it's not very long at all before we see more books, uh, okay. more books being published. And now okay. Luther works alongside Johann Walter to publish the, the Geistliche Gesamtbuchlein, a spiritual hymn booklet, and in it is a collection of polyphonic motets meant for the choir. What, what is that? Well, let's <laughs> first talk about he's writing for the choir. We've got this great expression in this podcast about how he's writing for the laity. And here he writes a book for the choir. And it brings up how he introduced change was to give it to the choir, but not have it always stay in the possession of the choir. He wanted things to be able to move from the choir to the laity. But let's talk about this now. That's the right. And I have, I have some actually some samples here. I'd like to walk us through kind of where, where we were and then what the chorale was and then what the motet was. Okay. So, uh, first, this is an example 
of this is a sequence which would be kind of like a gradual sort of in that same era this is Gregorian chant And that's that would be that would be monophonic. So if you think about poly polyphonic as being, um, you know, many many sounds. So that um, monophonic was everyone was on the same note, moving at the same time. Exactly. And now polyphonic. And so now when we have actually in in between there is um is is the hymn the chorale. Uh, the chorale is 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 homophonic. So while now we'll have harmonies that is people singing different pitches at the same time, for the most part they're moving together. So if you think about how you sing a hymn, there are typically four parts, uh, but but everyone moves more or less together, changing pitches at the same time. Do you time. have an example of that one? I have a great example of that one. Now this is a little bit later than Luther, but it is the Queen of the Chorales from 1599. Uh, here we go. <laughs> So, All right. so you can hear in that uh, you have now the beautiful harmonies, but but people are more or less moving together. Um, so that would be something you know the choir obviously would learn that rather quickly. It's it's less difficult than what they had been doing, uh, but but it's something that the people can take even if the people are only singing singing the melody line. They're a part of something now. Then we have the motet. Um, so so motet is kind of. So I have yeah, one, yeah. one yeah, question. Yeah. So so those two right? Those two are. Did Luther introduce the second one you said? That's right. Yes. So prior to Luther, uh, there, there was not chorale singing in the divine service. Uh, it existed, it could, the, you know, that form of singing in harmony would exist outside of the church. Uh, but in, in terms of the divine service of the mass, that, that was not so a part of what was going on. Is that an example of the folk song? Uh, it could be similar. So, so Luther sort of saw this folk hymn thing going on, uh, and he brought it in, but he brought it in not without modification. So, so it is, yeah, it is similar in some sense. It's sort of dressed um, up, uh, you know, yeah. sort of uh, cleaned up well. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting I think it. Said, they say that about us. So, we, we, so we've heard the, the homophonic, the chorale, mm-hmm. and we've heard the, the monophonic Gregorian chant. And what's the next thing we're going to so, do? So this is what we're talking about when, when we're talking about Luther writing a collection of polyphonic motets. Polyphony, which is what polyphonic is, is, that's when there are multiple lines of melody happening at the same time. Which basically means people are singing more or less different pitches and different rhythms simultaneously. Um, now what a motet is, is it's, it's actually a very broad uh, form of music. There isn't, it's not a really strictly defined music, but motet, uh, what's, what's the driving word you hear there is motion. So fugues, for instance, uh, are sort of in that motet tradition. Um, they can be fast, they can be slow, but, but it's, it's a vocal composition typically in polyphony. Um, the one I chose is actually on, on the same tune that we just heard there, the, the Morgenstern t- tune. Uh, and this is by a composer named Michael Pretorius who wrote around the, the turn of the, the 16th, 17th century. Um, and you can hear actually in this one, uh, from his Mass for Christmas Morning, how a congregation could learn the hymn from this motet. So it's gonna start out more or less in motet form, moving, moving around and lots of different stuff going on, but you'll hear it kind of solidify. So, so here this is.
So it's moving around here, um, but it's going to solidify, and you'll hear it after this one. Okay. Where it comes together exactly so, this is almost um for me theologically a sense of how we're coming from all of our various lives uh, we each have our own voices and then we come into something that is unified yeah yeah so is he doing really... that with a theological mind or is it just that he likes the artistry of it you know i'm not sure that's a that's a good question yeah. um but certainly i i think that could be read there uh, that we have in in music when you do have uh, the the choir, you still keep the choir, and the choir now can serve the congregation by providing something that's beautiful and by teaching and leading the congregation. Yeah, so Luther is writing these hymns and these motets in a time when there had been exclusively the use of a choir for the divine services, and now he is trying to get the congregation to sing, and this, uh, where we heard the polyphonic uh, bringing together by Michael Pretorius, you hear uh, a talented uh, set of singers, they, they're speak, singing in different pitches and different melodies, and then you hear the congregation be able to come together. And this is, I think, one of the ways that Luther is able to see how the laity and the clergy could work together, too. Now, those those songs that we listened to just now, those were those Latin? Were they German? Were they... What, what was... Even what was happening there in Germany in 1524, 25, that time frame... Uh, were they, were they transitioned over to the German? Sure. So the very first one we heard, the, um, that's Christians to the Paschal Victim in English. That, that, it, that was in Latin. That was a Latin sequence that, that goes back well before the Reformation. Though the Lutherans retained that one as one of three sequences that they actually kept around, even after Rome, uh, ditched their sequences. Uh, the other ones were in German, and those are coming from, you know, the, the hymn composed in 1599, uh, Pretorius, uh, Mass for Christmas Morning, a, a while after that, uh, in the early, uh, 17th century. Uh, those are German. So alongside this publication with Johann Walter of the Geistliche Gesangbuchlein in 1523, 1524, where there is the choirs teaching hymns to the congregations and the congregations singing together, there is then as well composing of hymns for the chief parts of the small catechism to aid in its teaching. And he's going to be writing these hymns for the small catechism uh, throughout the late 1520s, 1530s, finishing 1541. And I know I had a, um, a member of my congregation back in Niagara Falls, and, and she said that we had to learn every single one of Luther's catechetical hymns. And, and they're not short. No. Luther hymns are never short. <laughs> Luther's hymns are never short. They're 15, 17 verses long. And, but when he writes these hymns for the catechism, it becomes a way that you not only learn the Ten Commandments, but he places them inside of the role of teaching. And, and this just puts into context what was Luther's goal in these reforms wasn't, uh, to change, um, and, and introduce, um, a bass guitar and a, a, a high, sn- a high snare or something like that. He is doing it because he wants to teach the people. And we introduced this podcast by saying Luther's doing these reforms because he cares about the congregation. So, so the most famous song. A mighty fortress is our God. I'm glad you sang that instead of me. So the, so the, uh, the mighty, a mighty fortress, this is Luther's most famous song. We just sang it today in church. We did. And with our VBS band with that. That's right. Sort of a modern version, the kids version. But it's still, I mean, that's a very, very famous song. Uh, and it's actually, I think even the Catholic Church 
has it in their hymnody. They sure do. And so, you know, when was that? Was that the same time frame? So uh, it's it's hard to know for sure, but 15, 1527 seems to be the most likely date. Um, and and he was really epitomizing his experience in that in that hymn. Um, he he took the 46th Psalm, uh, certainly a mighty fortress is our God is a reference to the opening of the 46th Psalm. But, you know, oftentimes it is referred to as a Psalm paraphrase, but if you, if you read the hymn, it's not a line for line kind of Psalm paraphrase sort of hymn. It really is Luther taking this idea of, of God being a mighty fortress. And then now what does that mean for us? And now the hymn, it comes in uh, two versions in our, in hymnos, the TLH Lutheran hymnal had it in the same version that was around for a long time, a rhythmic version. And then we had introduced with the Lutheran Book of Worship, uh, then in Lutheran Worship, and now Lutheran Service Book includes both the rhythmic and the isorhythmic. And the ismo rhythmic, uh, which is the one that um, uh, a lot of people like today because it's it's a little bit more in a traditional singing version. And, and this is Beethoven's? Bach, actually. Bach. Yeah, it was Bach. Yes. Um, so, so... This is pretty typical of, of Luther, uh, Luther hymns. Uh, he, he wrote, uh, prolifically and, and quickly. Also, the style back, back then was a little different. So, um, you have a lot of composers in the coming centuries that will pick up Luther hymns or other hymns of, of the reformers and, and sort of make them a little bit more balanced, uh, a little bit more harmonically interesting. I have actually examples of this. Um, this is, this is the, the Luther, uh, or pretty close to the Luther version of the hymn. So this is the original version as far as we can tell. As far as we can tell, uh, yes. So here we go. I'll play just a little bit of this. So you can so you can hear there. Uh, I mean, certainly that's this particular rendition is is very spirited and and rhythmically very interesting. But I'll tell you, it's you know for the person in the pew, a little awkward to sing. Uh, we're mostly used to singing things that are metered in three or metered in four, and this is kind of all over the place. There's no there's no real meter. Uh, so so it's um yeah. There's no bar lines. There's no bar lines. It's it's sort of you can actually see sort of a transitional moment here between chant and then what we think of today is is hymnody. It's it's kind of in the middle there. So. Mighty Fortress is Our God, that rhythmic version that we just heard right there is this transition between Gregorian chant and congregational singing with a very metered uh, four by four. Yeah, it's, it sort of splits the difference. That's, that's right. And, and Luther, one of the nice things about that format though is I think the text in those hymns that are written that way can really speak. You, you hear. The notes are emphasized for the words rather than the words being emphasized wherever they can. Exactly. Uh, but you do have composers like Bach coming along and saying, you know, we love you, Dr. Luther, but your hymn is hard to sing. Uh, and <laughs> and <laughs> making it a little bit more harmonically interesting as well. Uh, just play a snippet of this. This is not exactly the Bach setting, but it's pretty close. Uh, and, and definitely the melody is the Bach. So you can you can hear there everything is very even, very very balanced. Uh, there's you know it's that's an easier one for the congregation to learn, and that's, that's the one we end up usually singing. Yeah, and that's yeah. the one I prefer. You yeah. Know, yeah, just as I like the one in, uh, that's the <laughs> first one we heard. That, that's sort of like a rock and roll one. Well, I like the syncopation <laughs> of it. Yeah, uh, along with the mighty fortresses, our God, uh, which is 1527. Before that, around 1526, uh, we have then the German Mass, right? 
That's that's right. So this is you know we had the formula missi er- earlier, which a lot of that was was Luther sort of taking his red pen and scratching out the sacrifice of the mass, uh, and and making some other suggestions. Now we have a divine service in the language of the people. Oh, then that's fifteen twenty six, just before. Okay, just oh. before a mighty fortress. Okay, so I got ahead right. of the game a little bit. <laughs> um, well, we're not quite sure about the dating of a mighty fortress, so maybe not. But, but, but we have now, this is kind of an interesting thing. The Kyrie, the, the Lord have mercy, still being sung in the Greek. Uh, people knew that one. That was one actually that, that, that whether they were singing or whether they were hearing it, there, there's not a lot of words there. They, they knew Kyrie eleison. So they actually retained that in Greek. Uh, as well as the, the Gloria and Excelsis Deo, uh, the, the glory to the Father, or, um, glory to God in the highest, excuse me. Um, people actually knew that one in the Latin, especially in the cities. So a lot of times they would keep that one in Latin too. But the rest of it went to German. So, so basically, elements, yeah. he made the decision on what was going to stay in Latin based on what the people understood. Yeah. If the people know it and they know what it means, let's let's preserve the heritage of the church. But where it becomes an obstacle to the people receiving the gospel, let's put this in their language so that they can know it and understand it. And one of the things that he does with the German Mass, with this emphasis on the congregation having a voice, is that there are parts that we would normally think of just... You know, we have to sing it with the creed, or we have to say it like the creed. We say the creed, but he wrote it in German, in a song, or the, the Kyrie, he wrote a new hymn, uh, we got him for that, or Isaiah Mighty Seer. We've got these hymns that he writes for the liturgy. Now, Divine Service Setting 5 in the Lutheran Service Book is the German Mass version with a little bit of revision. And he changes some orders. One of the interesting things about this, Mike, the German Mass, he would have um, an exhortation to the communicants, a sermon uh, about the Lord's Supper, uh, even after the regular sermon that would have been on the gospel. There'd be a sermon to the communicants about what is happening here at the Lord's Supper. There would be a consecration of the bread. Uh, the body of Christ would be elevated and distributed, and the people would sing the Sanctus. Then there would be the consecration of the wine, a distribution then of the blood of Christ, and while that was happening, uh, people would again sing the Sanctus. And so there would be this, um, you know, when I say the words of institution, it, it's a big whole package. I do it all at once, yeah. and we distribute the bread, then we distribute the wine all together. Um, and here it would be different, he had suggested in the German Mass. So there would be the consecration of the bread, distribution of the bread, then we'd all go back, and we'd do the consecration of the wine, and then a distribution of the wine. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so I guess the, 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 out of all of that, the, that, there are two things that really jumped out at me there. The first one was, of course, what you just said, which is, boy, that seems like that's going to take a lot of time. But that's, if, yeah. hey. Logistics. Yeah. The, the, but the, that's the, the second thing that really jumped out at me was they gave us a little mini sermon, you said? Yeah, an exhortation to the communicants. Um, before the Lord's Supper. Basically to explain communion and what was happening and that this is truly Christ's body and that sort of thing because... It's given uh, for us Christians to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins, yeah. And and so he's using the divine service as a regular opportunity to teach and say, this is what this is. Okay. Now receive it. One of the other really notable things about the German Mass here was that those settings of, of the liturgy ordinary were um, were set in hymns. Uh, so now where we had the hymns... Let's, let's first, the ordinary. Um, so the liturgy has pro- pieces that are called the ordinary and has pieces called the propers. The ordinaries are those things that ordinarily stay the same. Oh, okay. And then the propers are those things that are proper to that day of the church year. 
So the epistle reading is an example of a proper, because it changes depending on what day of the church year it is. But the Apostles' Creed is an ordinary, because it is ordinarily the same text, no matter what day of the church year it is. Uh, yeah, that is uh, that is terminology. Okay, that yes. is brand new for me. I should have explained that. Yes, uh, thank you. So, for, uh, so there's the so, ordinaries. What happens? Which you see, you see, even going back before Luther, you see a lot of the musical work being done on the ordinary because it's done daily or weekly or what. So it's you know the proper's change. The the ordinary stays the same. So a lot of these great settings, like when you when you go listen to. Uh, one of the masses by Bach or something like that. A lot of that work is done on the ordinaries, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Creed, uh, the Agnus Dei. The, Is it can the be Sanctus. used in other parts. Then? Exactly. Uh, and that was really the, the, a lot of the artistry went into those elements. But so he set those in hymns. When they were using the formula Missi, they were still, uh, using whatever they had been using in terms of chant tones and things like that. Um, now this is like, the, let's have the people sing these words. Um, Pastor mentioned that the, the uh the consecration uh was happening after the sanctus um but before uh the reformation the sanctus was sung while the priest would would very quietly read the words of institution and then he would sort of make a make a symbol or something and that's when pe- the people would lo- move on to the lamb of god they never heard those words they wouldn't so hear all this... the words of institution because the priest was saying the words of institution in latin in a, a whispering voice at the altar and while he's saying the words of institution, the people would be singing the Sanctus. They would get the hint that it's over, then they'd move to the Lamb of God. Exactly. And now he has the Sanctus being sung during the distribution. Right. So what you see here with sort of the experimentation in consecration is it's just trying to find the pattern, I think. Find how, how should we do this? How do we keep singing yeah. the songs we sing? And yet have it so people can hear the words of institution. So, so we've got all this stuff going on, uh, going from, from Latin to German, changing the order of things, changing the, the style of music, all this stuff. How effective was it all? Did it actually work at teaching the people? Well, I, I would venture to say that the Reformation spread in, in, in no small part due to the hymnody being spread and the people being able to know the words. Uh, I think another way to think of how significant it is, uh, Mike and Chris, is that after Luther's death, there is the small called war, the Lutherans lose, and there is an attempt by the emperor to reinstitute the Catholic's form of the mass. And the Lutherans will not let their mass be changed back to the Catholic form because they have, over the 20 years, from 1526 to now 1547 when the small called league war ends and there's the attempts at the Leipzig interim, they won't let go of the Lutheran reform of the liturgy because they say we need this to continue to share the gospel. And some of the people that are, are trying to do the diplomacy say, let's go back to the Catholic form of the mass and just in our hearts know what we believe. And they say, no, we cannot leave behind the Mass. Now, for us, we've been using that word Mass. They continued to call it to the Mass. Uh, they didn't change it to the worship service or something else. They continued to call it the Mass. Oh, the Lutherans did, even yeah. because, I mean, that's one of like, the... Even during Bach, he writes the Mass. Right. And so this uh, avoidance of the word Mass or this notice that uh, when someone visits a Lutheran church and they say, what time is your Mass? It's like, ooh, they're, they're not Lutheran. That's not as important. Yeah. This word mass is not the big uh, sign of whether, secret code word, whether you're Lutheran or Catholic at this time. A- a- any thoughts on Luther's? Did he see it as being effective? Um, 
I would I would say so. Yes, I, I mean he he really uh, he even at one point wrote a treatise or proposed rather a treatise that would be written on music, um, and and basically outlined the following points that he would assert: um, that one, music is a gift of God and not of man; uh, and two, for it creates joyful hearts; three, for it drives away the devil. Uh, for for it creates innocent delight, destroying wrath, unchastity, and other excesses. And five for music reigns in times of peace. All right, all right. So so any other comments that he had on music? Uh, he also wrote a poem a poem called "Lady Music" in praise of music. Uh, Luther is is quoted often and in various places um, praising music, calling it next to theology. You see that quote kind of all over. I have seen um, that one. The, the, it's not in that poem, but but certainly that poem bears that out. He he talks a lot in that poem about. I'll just read just a quick sample here. Uh, the devil's works are confounded. Evil murderers are avoided. Uh, witness King David's actions good, who often quelled Saul's evil mood by sweetly playing on the lyre and thus escaped his murderous ire. By truth divine and God's own word, the heart is stilled and is prepared. Such did Elisha once propound when harping he the spirit found. I think that that sense of poetry that he has about music brings up that 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 note of artistry for theology for Luther. That now it's not just that he's trying to be artistic, but that there is a beauty in theology that he wants the people to know about. He doesn't want to make it just a series of sentences. He wants the beauty of the theology that he holds in Jesus Christ to be shared and known. I, th- I think he would say something to the effect of, you know, music was given as a gift first and foremost for this. That this is why we have music. And anything else, while it may be good, is is secondary to music as as an expression as as a tool to express theology. Now another thing to consider is he's making these reforms to the German mass, and there is uh, concern that he is making it too public, too ordinary too common, and that he is watering things down by letting the people understand what is being said. And here in his introduction to his revision of the Mass into German, he says that about the Divine Mass, uh, he says, is the true type of evangelical order should embrace, that is, um, it shouldn't be celebrated so publicly in the square amongst all and sundry. Those who are, are desirous of being Christians in earnest and are ready to profess the gospel with hand and mouth, should register their names and assemble by themselves in some house to pray, to read, to baptize, to receive the sacraments, and practice other Christian works. He is making the point that he is not writing this German Mass to be just a thing of done among all sundry of things. He, he still has this note of sacredness, which I think is helpful to consider when his revision of the German Mass is thought of it. And people will say, well, you know, he revised the Mass into German so that everyone in every place could have it. He still has this notion of sacredness and a sacred space. Right, well, and, and the confessions pick that up, too, when they say that we do not abolish the Mass. Uh, that's, that becomes important for Luther as well as the other Reformers, that whatever changes are made are primarily informed to better to better teach the Gospel and to not get in its way. So... So Luther wrote a bunch of these songs, but I've heard one of the things that that maybe he didn't write all of them. What's 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 the what's the latest thinking on that? So definitely in the 19th century, there were musicologists and others who who cast doubt on Luther's musical ability. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, it is kind of hard to believe that this this eminent theologian would also be a master musician and, and all these other things that he was. Um, but, but modern scholarship does affirm that Luther did write the tunes. Uh, he really was the one who, who created the Lutheran chorale and, and brought it forward. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, 
So any final comments, Chris? I, I just want to read um, from, from one of Dr. Luther's hymns, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, which I love A Mighty Fortress, but I, I really think that this, this along with Salvation on Doss has come, are the, are the real hymns of the Reformation. And see if you hear Luther and his struggle in this, and, and keep in mind that this is what the people were singing into their hearts. My own good works all came to naught, no grace or merit gaining. Free will against God's judgment fought, dead to all good remaining. My fears increased till sheer despair, left only death to be my share, the pangs I hell have suffered. But God had seen my wretched state before the world's foundation, and mindful of his mercies great, he planned for my salvation. He turned to me a father's heart, he did not choose the easy part but gave his dearest treasure. And the whole, the whole, you know, all 10 verses are just, are just full of, of these pictures of God reconciling himself to humanity. It's uh, a biography. It, you, yeah, it's a biography, but it's a biography that doesn't speak just to Luther. It starts with Luther, but then, then we see ourselves in it. The whole church can see herself. So what was the name story. of that song again? This is Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. And it was one of the hymns in that, in that eight song book, along with Salvation Unto Us Has Come by Sparatus. No, uh, those are, for, for me, those, those are the ones. For those of you who can't see, uh, right now, Evan is bouncing his head because he's singing along in his head to this song. So, so uh, because uh, I love my wife, I won't sing out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and she would say, "Why didn't you listen for the note?" <laughs> well, Chris, thank you, thank you. I guess uh, thank you so much for coming in. We really enjoyed having you here. It was on, a pleasure to be here. Thank and uh, we also wanted to say thank say thanks to Josh for his always always help and also providing this wonderful space that we're here. And also a special thanks back to our beer break for Stan Buckrick and the beer he brewed for us today. Uh, thank you, Stan. And uh, also thank you to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan. Why don't you speak to some of the resources that you used in developing this? So uh, Luther's works, of course, it's uh, it's volume 53. Uh, it is, has the hymns uh, as well as a lot of the liturgical reforms. Uh, I also pulled a lot from Dr. Robin Lever. Uh, Robin Lever is a uh, is a musical scholar uh, in England. He is actually an Anglican, uh, but but is we'll let uh, that go. <laughs> he's a, he's There's a, a lot of unity. He's he's an he's an expert on on both Luther as well as Bach. He has some fantastic work about about Johann Sebastian Bach as well. Uh, the works I consulted for him: Luther's Liturgical Music, a study of the use of the hymn in two liturgical traditions, and another one. Uh, a, a new one that just came out this year that I'm in the middle of in love. The whole church sings congregational singing in Luther's Wittenberg. He published that for the 500th anniversary. It's, it's really great so far. And we'll have notes about these resources on the blog posting related to this episode. If you want to contact us, you can shoot us an email at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you'd like to host a road trip. We'd love to come out and, and have a beer with you. A road trip is where we go to a brewery near you. Uh, you bring your men's group or women's group or uh, some friends, and uh, we share some beer and share some discussion of theology. Uh, you can also catch us on graceontap-podcast.com uh, or on Facebook at Grace on Tap, and make sure you look at the one that says podcast. Mm-hmm. And then any reviews you can provide on iTunes help other people to find us and, and understand whether it's a podcast they want to listen to. Very good. Well, thank you, guys. Roast. Roast.